Good morning, Christchurch. It's good to have you here this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 4 this morning, Philippians 4. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the good news of your son Jesus. That he suffered, he died, and he gave himself to redeem us back to you. That you have, in your love and in your compassion for us, done all necessary to bring us back into your arms. Lord, we thank you that you're, you filled us with your spirit and move us and drive us to conform to who you are. That we might see the righteousness bestowed upon us by the work of Christ and seek to make it our own. We thank you that you've given us strength and boldness in this. We ask that as we As we look at your word today and see just more practical advice and practical guidance that we would see and recognize how this all grows from and, and, and comes out of these truths. The truth of your son Jesus, his work. What is in Jesus' precious name that we do pray? Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. We'll look at the first nine verses here today. This is what we would, we would call the conclusion of Paul's letter, or at least the conclusion proper of Paul's letter, where Paul has kind of shifted from, <clears throat> shifted from his normal uh, train of thought kind of writing and preaching uh, to kind of getting these last little bits of uh, of, of, of advice or information out. So, and so it seems like Paul's being a little bit more um, sporadic or spotty, but, but, I, but I think that there is still a flow to things. So just as, as I read through this, bear that in mind. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syndicate to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness... Be known to everyone, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And peace, in the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, 
whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Again, Holy Spirit, we invite you to teach our hearts the truths of the word. In Jesus' name. So like I said, we're we're getting into what we would call the, the conclusion, the proper conclusion, where Paul is going to kind of shift. And it's at this point that Paul really shifts from being theological in nature to being ex- exclusively practical. I think that he makes a, a subtle shift into chapter 3, but a, a, an abrupt shift, an obvious shift shift into chapter 4. You might notice in your ESV Bibles, if you have your Bibles, that there is a subtitle that comes in between verses 1 and 2 uh, of chapter 4. I, I think that the, best, the better place to see the, the split in thought is between chapter 3 and chapter 4, and that it's just a, a random bit of, of thought that doesn't really pertain to anything. But, but we see this, this word, therefore, in the, the, the phrase, the adage is, is, when you see a therefore, you ask, what is it therefore? Um, we, we look at the therefore, and, and, and when you see a therefore in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, what we need to do is we need to take what we just thought about, what we just learned, and place it, not, not at the back of our mind like something that we we can forget about, but we place it in the front of our mind and we, and we look at what follows in light of that idea or that thought. In this case, we look at chapter 3. In chapter 3, Paul presents the gospel message in light of false teaching. Presents the gospel message in light of false teaching. Or, or maybe we could say he presents the gospel message because of false teaching. He tells us at the very beginning of chapter 3, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. And, and, and then he warns us not to think like them by telling us to recognize that Jesus has done it all. His work, his, his work, and his work alone is what redeems us, is what saves us. It is all of Christ and none of me, and we put no confidence in ourselves, as Paul tells us. He shows us this grand list of all these amazing credentials that he possesses. And he says, all of this is garbage. It's rubbish. Because Christ is more. Because Christ is all. And, and, and in fact, if we think otherwise, we diminish what Christ has done. And it, it, even as far as to say we take away what Christ has done or we, we ignore what Christ has done, even adding a little bit to it. And then he he tells us that we should take what Christ has given us, the righteousness bestowed upon us from God, that depends on faith, and we should, like he, seek to make it our own. We are justified by the work of Christ. We are empowered to be changed and transformed, to be sanctified by the power that dwells in us by the Holy Spirit, the, the will and the work of God. Enacted by the Holy Spirit, we are empowered to do this, but we seek to make it our own. We play the part in, in the process. We work to, to change and be transformed. All the while knowing that at some point when we die or when 
the Lord returns, we will finally be completed. Therefore. And I do think that that's really important that we recognize, and Paul does this all the time, we recognize the the theological, the understanding in our mind of, of the true path it really does matter that we think about this before we think about the practical. Because when, when we focus on the practical like we're going to do today, it can be really easy to think that that practical plays a part in our salvation. And so we have to keep it in line. We have to keep it in order. And I, I, said, this, I said this before when we were looking at chapter 3. I've said this all through the, the letter of the Philippians. We have to keep the horse, the power, in front of the cart cart being the practical, the horse being being Christ. And I don't want to, don't take that too far, obviously. So therefore, my brothers, note this. I didn't change that verse, so hold on. Therefore, my brothers, my brothers, a, a term of endearment, whom I, I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. There are six terms there that I think are terms that Paul is, is using to, to, to connect himself. Right? He connects himself to these, these Philippians, these believers. In my mind, this almost seems like language that you use whenever you're about to to scold somebody or to or you've just spoken harshly and you want to make sure that the relationship hasn't been I you know I'm saying this because I love you kind of language but that's not it's not what it seems like Paul has done he's not been harsh Paul has Paul thinks highly of the of the church in Philippi and he and he's not really going to change his tone and, and it's it just shows me it just seems to me that that Paul's relationship with with the people at Philippi is so deep, it's so dear, and it's so important to him. I think this is how, really, how we should be with each other. Sometimes I think we 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 get to be okay with having just an okay relationship with the people in the church. Maybe I'm the only person that thinks this way, but. Your church family is, is so important. And it should be one of the dearest, if not the dearest, relationship that you have. I hardly can imagine speaking to many of you in this, in this light, thinking in, in, with any sincerity of these words. And, and that's my fault. It's my fault. I'm not blaming you for that, but... But perhaps because we don't think we don't think that the church is supposed to be dear and near to us. And, and the reason why reason why I think that matters, and the reason why I think Paul goes to this first, is because this then motivates everything that follows. You know, at the men's retreat, we we talked at great length about about how we how we interact with with each other and how how for far too long in the church, any correction that is made between brothers and sisters in Christ started from a place of judgment as opposed to a place of love. 
And I think Paul shows us here that, that any correction, big or small, and, and I think the correction that is about to follow is very, very small, needs to be bathed and, and motivated and purposed first and foremost in that love and compassion that we have for each other. And, and to connect it to the rest of the book of Philippians, I think, I think this, is the, this is the outcome. This is the, this is the outcome of thinking of others more significant than, their, than ourselves. It's hard to think of some, somebody as more significant than, than me and not, and not care for them. So then Paul gives us what, what I'll break down into three sections, into three little bits of practical teaching in light of the gospel message. The first is what, what we would call a, a, a sort of rebuke. He says, in, in verse 2, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syndicate to agree in the Lord. He's going he's gonna to tell us that these are women, these are women's names. It's nothing more than that. Not, that. not that you're necessarily reading commentaries and knowing that people talk about. It's just not. It's just these two people who have had some sort of beef. And, and I think, I, I think that it's very purposeful that we don't know the situation. We don't know the situation. And I think Paul is, is he, he knows that he could share the situation. I think, I think he knows that and he doesn't. I think the Spirit of God is not showing us that bit of information because then we would maybe take it to, uh, to a very particular direction. And, and I don't think that's the point. Paul encourages these two women who have some sort of disagreement, who's some sort of discord, some, some, some disunity happening because of this situation. He says, listen, I, I'm, I'm pleading with you. I entreat you. Right? I'm pleading with you to agree in the Lord. But he goes one step further. Paul doesn't just say this to these, these two. He, he then gets a few other people involved both directly and indirectly. In verse 3, he says, Yes, I ask you, true companion. There's a lot of different opinions on where this, this comes from. This might be somebody's name that just means true companion. This might just be a general statement, but I think he's probably talking to the pastor of the church. And the reason why I think that is because the pastor of the church would have been the first audience. He would have got the letter, he would have read it, and then he would have read it to the church. This was meant to be read to the church. So I think he's talking to the pastor of the church, he gets involved. He, he gets the pastor involved in this situation. He says, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so I said direct and indirect. He says directly, he tells one particular person, you need to get involved in this. Help them along to find some, some unity. But then he also gets Clement and the other fellow workers involved. Now, he doesn't do so directly. He doesn't say, you need, to, you need to stick your nose in this situation. But I think he connects them to the importance of unity in the body of believers. Because the simple reality is that when there's, when there's discord in the church amongst one or two people that becomes known, it creates discord with everybody. There is this realization that, 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 that the the, the struggle that's going on between these two isn't just their struggle. It goes beyond you. 
or at, at least we should be connected enough as a church, as a community of believers, where it does. I think one of the things that Paul shows us here is the outcome, like I've already said, the outcome of what it means to think of others more significant than, them, than yourself. Recognize that your actions and your work and your, and your trials with each other, they're not just yours. They affect the body. And he goes on in, in verse, excuse me, verse 4 here. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. I think there's kind of a transition verse here where he's connecting what what he just said to Yudia and Syndicate. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everybody. But this also then plays into the next point that he's trying to make. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The Lord is at hand. And, and this brings us all the way back to the beginning of the letter where Paul tells us, listen, God is in control. He has it. He has it in control. He Don't, don't worry that I'm in prison because... because be, my imprisonment has served to advance the gospel. God is, in, God is in control. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Step into the Philippian church for just a minute. There's this tension going on, and it's loud enough to where Paul has heard about it. Not physically loud enough, but loud enough people know about it. It's creating struggles, it's creating trials, it's creating tension enough to, to likely either send this news with, with Epaphroditus from chapter 2 or Timothy from, from chapter 2. To tell Paul, hey, just just so you know, everything's going good. We got people are believing good and good and right things, but there's this tension that's arising, and, and, and we just don't know what to do about it. And so Paul writes back, and he 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 says, you know, agree in the Lord. But then there's that that lingering difficulty. Will that be enough to heal the rift? Well, certainly. Right? Our foolishness does not trump God's control. It doesn't, it doesn't win when Paul is in prison. It doesn't win when Epaphroditus gets sick. And it doesn't win when we're foolish and selfish and we think only of ourselves. And so, we take that confidence or that belief that God is at work and we give all to him. I find myself, just in a, in a bit of honesty with you, I find myself more often than not, which is super frustrating, but more often than not, 
going to the Lord fifth, sixth, or seventh down the road. A struggle comes up, a trial comes up, a difficulty comes up, whatever thing comes up. And I first, I try to handle it myself. Typical male style. Oh, you do. And then maybe I ask for help from, you know, Missy or depending on the situation, my dad or somebody else in the church. And then fill in the blank for the other thing. I don't have a specific situation in mind because there's too many of them. And then finally, when, when all frustration you know, meet, gets to its max, or the, I'm just, I, I, I don't have any more answers, I finally go, oh, I could pray. And maybe, maybe there's a little bit of this coming on with, with Yudia and Cindy. You, I, oh, it's nice that you, you told Paul, me, right? It's nice that you told me about this, but, but have you prayed? Have you given it to the Lord for his work, for his guidance, his direction? Maybe let me say it in just one other way before we go to this last little bit. Is the first place that we go the Lord? Again, if I'm honest, no, it's certainly not. Not all the time, at least. And that's kind of silly. If I, if I believe even half the things that I say that I believe about this book, man, what in the world is my problem? Because the promise over and over and over again in Scripture, and what we've seen in, in, the, in the letter to the Philippians over and over and over again, is that the Lord, He cares. He cares about the big situations, Paul being imprisoned. He cares, about the, he cares about the sickness and the health and well-being of, of, the, of his servants in, in, in Epaphroditus. And he, and he cares about the, the probably foolish quarrel between, between Eudia and Syndicate. I think sometimes we, we have this like, once it gets to a certain level, then I'll bring it to the Lord. No. And he says, finally... Finally, brothers, we had a finally at the end of chapter three, or the, sorry, the beginning of chapter three, when Paul says, finally, my brothers. And I told you then that, it, that, that the word finally in the Greek can, can mean a couple different things. It can mean, OK, this is my conclusion. And it can also mean, OK, I, that thought. Now, let me tell you another thought that's, that's similar, but, but kind of a new thought. This, I think, is Paul's actual finally in conclusion kind of a statement. Not just because it's the second time he said it in this letter, but for other reasons. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let me try to sum this up in what I think, I think is maybe an easier way to think about this. Whatever godliness God is bestowing upon you, think about these things. So as we, as we recognize that the work of Christ has justified me in the eyes of God, the work of the Spirit in my life is changing and transforming my life, 
As I look at what righteousness has been given to me from God, depending on my faith, think about these things. Whatever is true, it's the Word of God. Whatever is honorable, it's the Word of God. Whatever is just, pure, holy, lovely, commendable, all of these things are what the Bible teaches us. Think think about these things. Now in other places, Paul says, Paul says, Make this your heart. Here he says, think about them. This reminded me as I was as I was reading and preparing for the sermon this week. This this reminded me of Psalm 119, and and along with Hebrews 7 and 8. Here's your homework for the for the week. Go and read Psalm 119, especially if you've never read it. It's a long psalm and it's a repetitive psalm, but in there, the author it's either David or, or Ezra. It doesn't really matter. They speak of this idea of, of dwelling in and meditating on and, and possessing the law of God. We are, we are creatures. We are creatures of habit. We are creatures of, of thought. Meaning that sometimes what we need is a good long week of being reminded of the same thing. Again, maybe I'm the only stubborn individual in this room, but I highly doubt it. All of these things, think about these things. Meditate on what is true and right. Dwell on what God is doing in your life. Not... Really for only one purpose. For only one purpose. And I think that's what verse 9 tells us. It says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, all of these things are in reference to what he's just said, right? You've heard, you've you've watched me, you've seen truth in me, you've seen honorableness in me, you've seen justice in me, so, so on and so forth. All of, practice these things, think about these things, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. God of peace will be with you. Now, now let's, let's make sure that we get the order right. If you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are redeemed of Him. But have you ever been living your life as a Christian? And again, here's a bit of honesty. You're living your life and you just are like, I don't, I don't know what God is. Sometimes I go to the scriptures and, I, and, and I'm in that moment and I feel that way. And, and again, it happens more than I would like, I'd care to admit. And the thing that resounds to me as I look at it and I go, the reason why I feel distance is because I'm distant from God. Because his ways are not what I'm thinking of. His ways are not what I'm meditating. I'm not practicing the righteousness that has been bestowed upon. I don't, I'm not striving to make it mine. And this doesn't mean that I, that I, don't, that I, that I am not saved, not, not at least necessarily. But it, but it certainly means that God cares enough about me, that he's willing to, to let me go astray, and he steps back so that I might come to realize just how much I need him. 
This is what the Babylonian exile was. God does not send the Babylonians to, to, to conquer the people of Israel because he wanted to cast a final judgment on them. He sends the people of Babylon to conquer the people of Israel so that the people of Israel will know their desperate, and I do mean desperate, need for him. Sometimes the distance you feel from God is because you have distanced yourself from God. And he's called you to be with him. And, and isn't, that, isn't that what we want? You know, I say that, and what's, what's amazing to me is I, I say that like, like God wants us to be near him, and, and, I, and, I, and I almost feel a little hesitant to say that because I don't want you to think that, that you should, I don't, I, I don't know what I want you to, I don't want you to think that, that I think that you should want to be with God. But that's the most foolish thing that I could possibly think. Because one of the things that we believe, one of the things that Scripture teaches us, is that in fact, nearness to God is what we should and do desire in the cross. Again, I've said it a number of times through, through this series. The cross, Jesus doesn't die on the cross so that you can just be you. Sinful and broken. He dies on the cross so that you can be his. And, and isn't that what we want when we cast ourselves upon that? That's what Paul's talking about in Romans when he talks about no longer having, having the, 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 the spirit of the flesh, but having the spirit of God. It, we, our, our, our motivations are fundamentally different yes I do still sin and yes the reality is, is I, stu I do still desire sin and the pleasure of sin but it is not what is the core of who I am anymore because there is this, this knowledge this realization that goes beyond what I can fully comprehend that being with God is just fundamentally the better place for me. It's not the easier place. It's, there's no promise in Scripture that if I, if I turn my life over to Christ, I won't suffer. I won't have trials. I won't have tribulations. No, absolutely not. Actually, probably the opposite is more promise. But, but to be near God in the midst of the struggles of life, is better. And that sounds like a really insignificant thing to say, especially saying it again and again. But again and again in human in, in church history we can see examples of why this is true. People who have suffered, who have something, and you're like, what do you have? They have a nearness to God. They have, to, to borrow from Scripture, peace. Sometimes we misrepresent what peace is. But this is what God is driving us towards and from start to finish in Scripture. Peace. 
agreeance in the Lord, Judea and Syntyche. Peace amongst our neighbors. We could look to the Old Testament law and see my, my ox has, has killed your goat, and so my responsibility is to create a balance there, and I'm going to either give you my goat or pay for their goat so that you can go get a new goat. Peace. This is what God is driving towards because God is not just God is a God of peace. He's not a God of turmoil and struggle and trial. And this doesn't resound as much to us today because in the in the ancient world, all the other gods, the pagan gods, were gods of turmoil and trial and struggle. It was normal to be with your God and to be at war and in trial. But God says, no. In the midst of all this, in the nearness to me, you can find peace. You can find peace. And dare I say, this might be the earthly and one day perfected outcome of walking with the Lord. Is his peace upon us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you that in a world that <clears throat> shouts and embraces struggle and tension and fighting. That we can live in the midst of that. Confident in your work. Confident in your peace. Confident that we are yours. And confident that you are continuing that no matter the trial that is around us whether it be imprisonment sickness or just a fight just a common everyday quarrel you care for us and that the work of your son while we rejoice and celebrate knowing that one day we will be perfected in heaven. Doesn't end in heaven. Or doesn't maybe start in heaven, but starts now. We can experience your true, your true peace. A peace that goes beyond understanding, beyond rationalization. Right this very minute as we are changed and transformed by the work of your Son, by the work of your Spirit, because of the righteousness that you have bestowed upon me, upon us. Again, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. It's in his precious name.